Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Connie is here today to talk about the uncommon connection we both have to making style relatable to everyone. Not something to be feared and intimidated into, but embraced and explored with joy and veracity. Connie is from Minnesota, but she went to school at UC Berkeley and graduated in just three years. I love that fact about her. I also met Connie when she was young enough to have a totally different style and vibe than she does today. She was 22 when she arrived in our Refinery29 offices to interview for the associate blog editor role. She became employee number six, and over the past seven years, she's risen through the ranks to fashion features director, a role she was, quite honestly, born for. I love Connie's style. I love her sense of humor, and more specifically, I love her peaceful, wide-eyed way of seeing the world. She is a Zen master in unique low clothing and ugly shoes. That will make sense later. Hi, Connie. Hi, Christine. <laughs> Welcome to Unstyled. <laughs> Thank you. I'd love to talk with you first about growing up in Minnesota. I, first of all, I feel so lucky to have grown up in Minnesota. All of the rumors that you hear about Minnesotans being very nice are very true. I can't remember a single time that I was bullied, which is so rare and I think special. And I, I'm so privileged to have grown up in that kind of environment. But that's not to say I didn't feel different. Me and my family were one of the few Asian families in a predominantly white, very, very white upper middle class neighborhood in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. I already felt different just Walking straight out of my house, knowing that we were the only family on the block who were Asian. Um, when my dad would mow the lawn, everyone would like slow down. Everyone would wave, but we were the Asian family on on the block. And there's nothing I could do to pretend that I wasn't Asian, you know. And so all of the stereotypes that you get, the non-malicious stereotypes that you get about being Asian, um, you know, were all applied to me growing up. So there's nothing I could do to try to fit in with everyone else because I was always going to be the one girl in the class that stood out a little bit. And you were born in China. I was born in China, and we moved around a lot when my parents immigrated to, to America, but we always moved to very, very white suburban neighborhoods from Nebraska to Alabama to eventually Minnesota. It's, uh, it's insane. So growing up, I never really considered myself, you know, part of a Chinese community. I always considered myself American or Minnesotan, you know. But I knew that I was different, and I knew that, you know, me wearing Abercrombie clothes or limited to, or whatever all the kids were wearing back then, still I still looked different. And frankly, those clothes were really expensive. And for my parents, who grew up with very, very little, um, moving to America where everything was all of a sudden way more expensive, and we were all on a budget, they are just like, no way we're going to be spending $20 on a T-shirt you're going to grow out of within six months. It's outrageous. It's dumb. And there's glitter on it. You can't even wash it in you know, laundry. So I had to get a little bit creative with hand-me-downs. There was nothing unfair about it. It was just the way it was. But the great thing about my mom especially was that she taught me to look through every single item and find the one thing in the rack that was special because there was always going to be one thing or at least one thing. So that's the thing I think that Minnesota really taught me, that there's always going to be treasure. It just depends on how willing you are to look for it. I was reading like fashion blogs that were 
hosted on Blogspot. I think Susie Bubble was one of the first ones that I read. It was stuff like I am fashion.blogspot.com <laughs> or, you know, I am the Asian leprechaun.blogspot.com. These are like fashion toast was coming around. Personal style blogs were just starting. But back then, like the majority of blogs that were on the internet were about commentary, like commenting on fashion, dissecting what are the coolest, newest brands? Like what do designer collaborations even mean? You know, that was what the the norm in fashion blogdom was. And so when I started my blog in my parents' basement in Minnesota, that's what I thought blogs were, talking about fashion rather than talking about my style. Because frankly, at the time, I just didn't have the capacity to talk about my style because it was just fun, you know. But I could talk about what Marc Jacobs was doing, you know, what these new boutiques in Hong Kong and stuff that I've never even heard of. Like I could comment on, you know, like how we wanted that for Minnesota or, you know, what H&M was, the Swedish sort of massive retailer that I had never even heard of. And I saw once when I went to New York on a class trip. So that's what I thought fashion blogging was. And unfortunately, in the the years that followed, it, it became less and less cool to do that and less people wanted to do it. But there are, you know, writers and bloggers who eventually became, you know, powerhouses like a Susie Bubble, Susie Lau, um, who have stuck around. But it was a it was a really fun time on the Internet. You just had your seven-year anniversary at Refinery29. Mm-hmm. You were employee number six. Number six, that's right. And I just remember how different your style was from then until now. And it's been such a, an honor to observe you evolving over the last decade. I'd like you to describe your style now. I would say that I shop smart in that I don't buy very many pieces. And each piece I buy is a little bit special. But I dress really lazily. I'm usually wearing just two items and my shoes, of course. I like the idea of shapes, you know, big exaggerated proportions, menswear. I'm so fascinated by the way that Japanese women dress. I don't wear a lot of black, um, and that's a big shift of mine that's happened in the past 10 years. I feel like black is so obvious for a New Yorker, and I I don't like being obvious. And I shy away from things that are girly and ultra feminine and, you know, roughly and make me look like thin or petite or cutesy because I feel like I already project that kind of vibe anyways with just the way that I am and I talk and the fact that I'm like a short petite Asian girl that I feel like (laughs) I don't want to really play into those um, stereotypes too much. What stands out the most to me is that you rely on a lot less than you used to. And I think that's a really interesting philosophy in that the more confident we become, we don't need so much. I mean, I think about the time when I first started at a refinery, I would think about my outfits a lot. You know, I would wake up early, put together what I was wearing, look at myself in the mirror and then change something, put something else on. I'm like, is the balance right? Is this like, is, is the skirt matching with the whatever? Like, I don't look in the mirror these days very much. I don't care as much, you know, like I like my clothes and I like my style and I don't need it to look perfect. I want to talk about a very important memory that you and I share. We were traveling in Milan during Fashion Week. We had been dreaming about going to the Marnie outlet. We love a bargain. And we're both really dedicated hunters. So we were practically running to the Marnie Not store. practically. Were. We were, were Definitely running. running. Yes, you have, you have <laughs> a picture of me running, actually, to, <laughs> running to the path. And um, when we were checking out of the Marnie outlet, This young Italian woman who didn't speak very much English looks at you and then she looks at your credit card and she looks back at you and she looks back at your credit card and then she says, Connie Wong? 
And we both were sort of like, oh my God, is there a warrant out for your arrest? And she sort of, you know, took her hand to her chest and she was like, Refinery29. She's like, I love your work. And I think I might have started crying on the spot. This is a long ways away from New York. And I think that that was really such a moment for you and I to not only realize how far the impact of our work reaches, but to see what your writing meant to her. And it was specifically the story about Ugly Shoes. Tell us about that essay. It started when, you know, I saw a Japanese woman walking down the street um, outside of our office in Astor Place, and she was wearing these white Birkenstocks that I'm actually wearing today um, with a back, sand, like a back strap. I, I chased her down. I was like, where did you get those? She's like, only seen the one with the double strap. <laughs> like, there's no back strap. <laughs> and she didn't speak English, and she couldn't tell me where she got them, and I was obsessed. And so I went online. I checked and checked. All my friends were like, do not get those, Connie. They look so bad. And this is, uh, I think this is this is before the Birkenstocks craze took off. And I, I, I had to have them, and I bought them, and people made fun of me. <laughs> like, my friends made fun of me. They were like, these are the ugliest shoes I've ever seen. And to be honest, they do make my feet look like baguettes, like like the the, the short ones, not, not the long skinny ones, like the short squat baguettes. But I love them so much. And, you know, even the past seven years, like, I started off wearing only heels to work. Do you remember that? I, I Every day I wore wedges, like, actual proper heels, like, uh, heeled sandals, drappy sandals. It was pumps. Oh, my gosh. And I attribute a lot of that style change to, you know, just, like, the changes in, you know, who I am as a, as a woman, as a professional. Um, and so this essay was a lot about, you know, why I like ugly shoes and, you know, why I'm thinking that the industry was shifting at the time to, you know, sell more ugly shoes you know women didn't want to wear like dainty like petite precious shoes that were uncomfortable anymore and I thought that was an amazing awesome thing and women shouldn't be scared about you know ugliness or perceived ugliness perceived ugliness and it should be a badge of honor I think I whenever I see another woman still in like ugly shoes I'm just like I know I could be friends with her but I think that that essay what was so important about it and continues to be important is that it represented for you and I who really believe in this in this feeling that you don't have to sort of look predictably feminine to be cool or to be stylish and that's okay and comfort is really important and it's not something to be embarrassed about you know, you have to suffer for fashion. You know, I don't necessarily believe that. I don't think you do either. I think for a lot of places, clothes are meant to do a few things to women. They're meant to make them look skinny, tall, more feminine, and richer. And attractive to men. And attractive to men, yes, exactly. And I don't think that we operate under those assumptions at Refinery29, which is so liberating. You know, clothes are meant to make you look more you, you know, more authentic, more interesting, more comfortable. It's the clothes are supposed to age you in doing the things that you already want to do in your life and more. And so when we do our any story, like a shopping roundup, when we do a fashion news story about an industry thing that many people might not care about, but um, or know the players within it, but you know, the themes might be things that they, they don't understand. Or, you know, when we ask someone to write a personal essay about a topic, we always tell them that They cannot assume that our readers care about looking skinny or looking tall or feminine or attractive to men. I think that that's a new concept, though. I think that there is finally an open dialogue in this industry about the fact that we cannot assume that all women want to look thin. Yeah. It's wrong. Yeah. And 
you know, sort of imposing that ideal onto women is really toxic. It might seem like such a subtle, non-harmful thing to be like, oh my God, that looks so flattering on you. It makes you look so skinny. It's like a little worm that just bores itself into your brain. You're like, oh, skinny is good. I must always look skinny. I must never wear anything that makes me look a little bit wider than I am. When I was single and like my entire goal for an entire evening was to like meet guys, I had to look skinny to make that happen. And now I could care less about whether I look thin or big or square or like a bowling pin or like whatever. I don't care about what shape I look like any day. Like, and it's actually sort of alarming when people are like, oh, my God, your waist looks so thin. I'm like, it does? <laughs> I'm like, what did I do? You know, like, what's wrong? And I think that most people who work at Refinery29 espouse those values and that, that mission. I think that's so awesome. Like, we just did this massive package on Generation Z, which is the generation after millennials. And it was so surprising and encouraging to me to realize that it's the norm for this generation to understand that, you know, women are whole beings. And that extends to the way they dress, too. You know, from all of the teens that we talked to, no one was like, oh, yes, I would love to look this like this like very outdated model of like what a woman traditionally should look like. No one ever said that. Everyone's like, oh, I want to look like boyish today and like maybe girly tomorrow or like the trends that they looked to or, you know, could be traditionally thought of as really unattractive or like unflattering. And I think that's so cool. I think that this idea that like fashion is only meant for a certain kind of person is really getting to be very outdated. And that's so cool to me. And I think you are such a beautiful example of this is just showing, you know, how your style changes as you change. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with your style changing throughout the years. You know, you can't expect a human being to stay the same throughout their lifetime. And it's crazy to think that their style would stay the same. And I'm so proud of the how I've been throughout my entire life. Even the embarrassing, horrible, like not so fun moments to remember, but like it was, it's, it's a part of me. And the way that I used to dress, not to say that I would wear the same things I used to wear, but I look back on those moments with fondness, like that Michael Kors duct tape dress. Like that was that was me when I first moved to New York and I was trying to do something with my clothes that, you know, I don't feel like I need to do anymore. But I had to do it back then to get to where I am now. I think that everyone <laughs> is probably guilty of going through some awkward phases. But, you know, ours were an I awkward mean, decade. Yeah. I felt like I was like 10 feet tall by the time I was in second grade. And it was just... It was bearing down on me. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think that there is something that happens when, as a child, you are aware of being different. It's really not about being beautiful or or not beautiful. It's really just about being different. And I think there's such a different sensibility about being different. There's more of a need to be different now, you know, with younger people. Yeah. So we have a series. It's This is the second year we're doing it. And it's called? Fuck the Fashion Rules this industry, the fashion industry, is very sort of reliant on rule-based culture. Mm -hmm. Like, do this, don't do this. It's our fashion department's, like, banner series because we think that, you know, great personal style is not rule-based. It's all subjective. And what we like to do at Refinery is provide you with all the resources you need, all of the retailers, all of the products and trends and things that are possibly out there and let you make the decisions for yourself. We're never going to tell you what to wear because that's not our jobs. That's crazy. Um, And we actually wanted to, you know, deliberately attack and break down the sort of idea that you have to follow rules in order to be stylish. Well, thank you so much for being on Unstyled, Connie. Thanks for having me. I hope you'll come back. 
oh yeah, I mean, you just have to turn around your desk, and I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be <laughs> <Exactly>. there. Exactly. <laughs> no formal emails to you. No. Thanks, Connie. Thanks, Christine. I hope you're inspired after hearing Connie Wang's story. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. This season was produced and edited by Elisa Kreisinger with production assistance from Rebecca Easley for Refinery29. Copy and research support provided by Lila Brilson. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. Hannes Brown produced our episode music, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, and I hope you've enjoyed Unstyled just as much as we've enjoyed making it for you. We'll see you back here next season.